0: Well, hi there. Welcome to the podcast for The Kelly Cutrera Show for Wednesday, September 23rd. Today on the show, Dr. Michael Warner, the head of ICU at Michael Garron Hospital, is warning that the increased demand for COVID-19 tests could actually have an effect on hospital staffing and resources. Uncle Ben's is going the way of Aunt Jemima with a complete brand overhaul. Fancy some Ben's original tonight? Our pop culture expert, Alyssa Freeman, talks brand challenges but first, I want to welcome on the show Toronto City Councillor James Pasternak. Welcome to the show, James. Good to have you on again.
1: Good to be on the show. Thank you very much.
0: You know, we are dealing with so many challenges um, with COVID-19, and now Toronto has a clearer picture of the devastating economic impact that the pandemic has uh, wrought upon the city. There's a new report. It's focusing on the first half of the year. So how big of a hole are we in financially?
1: Well, we're looking at about $1.2 billion. At its worst, we were losing or going into the red at about $10 million a day. And it's important to remember that municipal governments cannot carry a deficit uh, from one year to the next. And we have limited taxing powers, unlike the provincial and federal government. So it's a, it's a really uh, disconcerting financial picture that we're facing.
0: All right. You've identified in the report three uh, key areas of losses. Do you want to run through those for us?
1: Sure. Well, Toronto Transit Commission. Uh, you know, you're looking at about 272 million unfavorable shelter, housing, and support. 11 million unfavorable, and court services 10 million. And then there's a there's a whole bunch of other uh, line items uh, that um, uh, that that are that are very disconcerting. Uh, at the same time, uh, our ability to bring in revenue uh, has has been uh, has been very devastating. Uh, whether it be from land transfer tax, whether it be from uh, Toronto Parking Authority, whether it be from development uh, charges, uh, those kinds of uh, sources of revenue uh, have, have dried up. And of course, many businesses are failing. So the commercial tax from there is is also uh, 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 we're also losing on that, too. So, okay, we're, so- we're, yeah. Yeah.
0: The picture you're painting is is pretty bleak. You need cash. Toronto actually found nearly $550 million in savings during the pandemic. Can you maybe give us an idea of where you found the savings? I mean, that's an awfully big couch to look underneath all the cushions of.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, what we did was we put, we had some workforce restraints, um, some hiring that we were planning on doing, particularly the summer hiring uh, was, was not done. We put in some... Uh, spending, uh, spending restraints. And of course, there was uh, cost avoidance where we where we were very careful at what we were spending our money on. Uh, We had uh, about 90, a little under 10,000 staff put on emergency leave. And uh, there were about uh, we have close to uh, 3000 vacancies across the city, which we're not uh, going to fill. Uh, So so these are uh, these are all distressing. Uh, the City of Toronto is proud of its service and its service levels. And when these things happen, those service levels are affected negatively.
0: Right. I mean, but uh, obviously some of the service levels don't need to be as high as they were uh, pre-pandemic, like the TTC. We can cut back a little bit there. I mean, we need to get around, but uh, not as many people are riding the TTC. Now, I understand that uh, city councillors say they're committed to avoiding tax hikes or service cuts, depending on the uh, money from the feds in the province. How much funding is Toronto expecting from the first phase of the safe restart agreement?
1: Well, you're looking at uh, somewhere in the vicinity of $660 million, which could, should come in uh, via the federal government, via the province to the city, uh, which will be a, a major, major help in, in helping us get through it. And we're looking at, at another $330 million or so uh, next year. But if the hemorrhaging continues, all we're doing is treading water with those funds it it keeps us uh it keeps us at uh, above water, but not by much um, so so we have we have a big problem uh and and raising taxes uh property taxes will not get us out of this problem
0: okay so do you do you anticipate that if the city doesn't get the amount of money they need from the feds and from the province, that they will go to the premier and ask about the possibility of allowing for new rev- revenue streams. We all remember when Tory went to uh, Kathleen Wynne in his uh, short pants, as he said, and asked for tolls on the Gardener, and she said no. Uh, do you think they're going to relook at, is the city looking at those kind of revenue streams?
1: I think we have to. I think we have to look at tolls again on the gardener and the Don Valley Parkway, uh, you're looking at something that can raise about 272 million dollars a year, on, based on a four um, a four dollar toll. Uh, it's mm-hmm. something that uh, uh, that at least it's directed uh, towards towards a cause of uh, back to fiscal uh, fiscal responsibility and uh, and fiscal balance. Um, that's one thing that I think we should uh, look at again. And uh, maybe with our uh, regional partners, a regional sales tax, although that's indirect taxation, and I'm not a fan of raising taxes uh, during a recession.
0: Okay, is those numbers on the gardener of people, you know, how much you can make from people traveling in the gardener? are they based on old numbers or numbers for the six months, the first six months? I know that's that's going to be odd, a combination of, of taking the first six months of the pandemic and, you know, comparing it to the other numbers and, and finding a new number, because we're not seeing the same amount of people traveling into the city on a daily basis. We just aren't, because a lot of people are working from home.
1: No, you're absolutely right. And uh, those those traffic volumes are low now, but they have been picking up. Uh, that would be an annual figure, the $272 million in the $4 toll. Originally, we were gonna start off with a $2 uh, toll, uh, which, um, which we were promised by the provincial government at the time. And of course, they changed their minds and wouldn't uh, provide the legislative authority for us to do it. Whether the current government or not, Um, can help us out with that. That's remained to be seen. But if they're not going to give us that tool, then we really have to look at more federal and and provincial investments in Toronto uh, because Toronto is the economic engine of the province and the country.
0: The mayor has indicated that he hopes that the throne speech will... Um, basically herald more aid to businesses. And you've already mentioned in our conversation that there's a lot of businesses in Toronto failing and that it's horrible for the health of the city uh, and the people that live within it. What else are you hoping to hear from the prime minister today?
1: Yeah, well, I think uh, what, what uh, the prime minister has to realize is that 80% of Canadians live in cities and municipal governments do not have the statutory power to to raise the revenue and stay afloat the way the other levels of government do. It's important to remember that 92% of all taxes paid by Toronto residents, that's income taxes, sales taxes, indirect taxes, uh, go to the federal and provincial government, and only 8% stay in the city. And that's an imbalance that's unsustainable.
0: James, I want to thank you for your time today.
1: You're very welcome. All the best, be safe, and we'll be in touch.
0: Same to you. All right. That's James Pasternak, Toronto counselor, uh, Ward 6, uh, York. All right. Well, that doesn't sound very good, but we'll see what the prime minister has to say today. He's going to talk to us twice. You know, I was just talking about the long lineups of testing centers. I got an email from Mike who said I went to two spots after the earliest COVID test online appointment I was given at Oakville Hospital was for September 30th, which was 10 days later from the day I tried to book. Anyhow, third place was a success. There's a spot in Brampton, on uh, Central Park Drive. It's an old hockey arena, and I was in and out in 15 minutes, and they're there until Friday. I think that is the uh, pop-up assessment center that uh, the mayor of Brampton, um, Patrick Brown, has been talking about on highlighting because they are trying to increase the number of people being tested for COVID-19. Is that the way to go? Dr. Michael Warner is the head of ICU at Michael Guerin Hospital. He's fairly active on Twitter, and he posted a video yesterday um, he, wel- he he joins the show right now. Welcome to the program. Good to have you on.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So one of your major concerns is the increased demand for COVID-19 tests. It's actually having uh, or could have an effect on hospital staffing and resources. I think it's important that you punctuate what exactly you mean because I think people are, are really looking forward to being able to get more tests, but that might not be the way to go.
2: Yeah, so I think this is a really difficult time for people because they, they can really only see what's right in front of them and right what's right in front of them is a line-up at an assessment centre. And I think what, what we need to explain is that the lab capacity that people at assessment centres are trying to access is the same lab capacity that I'm trying to access for my patients in the hospital. And all the tests go to the same lab. So the longer the lineups are at assessment centres, the longer it takes for me to get my test results for my patients in the ICU, which means I'm not able to diagnose them for now up to five days And then if a healthcare worker needs to have a test to be able to go back to work, it's now taking up to three days to get those results. So if we don't have healthcare workers able to work because they're on the bench waiting for test results, and if I can't get test results on patients uh, in the hospital to know what's wrong with them, I can't move patients through the system and I also don't have staff members to care for patients when demand increases. So if you put that all together and mix in flu season, we could have a problem with resources being available for people in the hospital. That isn't the problem today, but I think it could be the become the problem in the near future unless testing capacity increases and also unless we stratify who gets tested to make sure only the people who only the people who need to be tested are being tested when we're in the situation where we have limited supply of testing
0: we just had this conversation with our listeners and i opened the line and asked about how long they were waiting and i wondered out loud if we would reach a point where in the meantime until we get to a level where the labs can handle all the tests if we should be triaging uh, are COVID-19 tests?
2: Uh, I don't think we have a choice, Kelly, because right now the most important tests are those for patients in the hospital, because just to to make it completely clear to people, if I don't know what's wrong with you, I have to treat you for everything, which means I'm treating patients who don't have COVID, who ultimately don't have COVID, uh, with the same treatments I would give if they had COVID, and that causes some potential harm, because it takes five days to get a test result. So prioritize hospitalized patients, prioritize essential workers who need to get back to work, Those who public health say need to get tested, those with symptoms, those with an epidemiological link to an active case. The people who want to go to a wedding at this point in time should not be tested. It doesn't make sense. We we can't afford to have them standing in line because it delays all the important tests. And it means that contact tracers who are getting test results that are stale dated by five or six days really don't have a hope of being able to track people down in a way that's effective at limiting the spread of COVID-19.
0: So, Dr. Warner, do you think it's a misstep that the Ford government, although they their intention is well here intended, uh, do you think it's a misstep that they're saying asymptomatic people could be able to be tested at pharmacies even by the end of the week?
2: Uh, I think that it's probably made with the best of intentions, but i got to be honest with you, I think it's actually harmful. So, it, if the if the, uh, the pain point is lab capacity, then having a bunch of people line up at Shoppers Drug Mart, it uh, doesn't actually improve the situation it makes it worse because now those labs will have to receive tests from multiple different points not just hospitals and assessment centers but a thousand different drug stores it could reduce their efficiency and not increase uh, reduce the time that it takes to get your test result back then the message that everybody who wants a test should get a test is not the right message. It should be everybody who needs a test must get a test, but the results have to be posted in a timely manner. That's what's going to make a difference. And that's why I think Premier Ford was leaning on Health Canada and the federal government to see if we can approve some rapid testing. The PCR test that people get done in a lab is the gold standard test. That may not be necessary for every person, especially if they're asymptomatic. We need kids to be tested in schools, we need people to be tested to get back to work, but we can't all be waiting for the same resource because it means the people who really need it won't get the test in time.
0: Okay, so we should be investing some government dollars in, in other forms of testing. I was talking about how airlines, and we'll touch on this in a minute, in Europe are using this uh, test that's very much like a pregnancy test. We've heard about a spit test that's similar. Uh, it, it's like a pregnancy test. You don't pee on a stick. That's where it's unlike a pregnancy test. But you'll find out within 15 minutes if you are uh, COVID, po- COVID positive or negative. The only problem with this is sometimes there's false negatives.
2: Yeah. So I, I think that uh, we may be in a situation where we have to accept something that's less than perfect. And Health Canada may need to move the goalposts, to put Canadians in jeopardy but to acknowledge that if I can get a test result back in five minutes instead of five days maybe I can test someone more than once and if Ah. I have five negative tests then you know maybe we believe it so if the test isn't as sensitive as the PCR test which is what we're using that could be okay in certain patient populations if we can test them over and over again. I think we have to acknowledge the situation that we're in, which is unprecedented, and perhaps use different criteria to determine whether something is safe and effective, uh, given the world we're living in now.
0: Yesterday, the province announced its fall fam- pandemic plan, and it has. they say they've been working on it since July, and they don't want to overwhelm us with the information. So the first message was $71 million in uh, support for a flu campaign. The province has ordered 5.1 million doses. Is this the appropriate start?
2: So I have to be honest with you, Kelly, I didn't hear a plan yesterday. I heard get your flu shot. Uh, there's 14 and half people in Ontario, so I'm not sure why the number is 5.1 million. And of course, get your flu shot. That makes a lot of sense. But that should not be a smokescreen to camouflage the fact that the Ford government does not have, have a plan. To say that we're going to you know, let people know day by day, I mean, we don't want the suspense to kill us. We need to know today what is going on. And if there isn't a plan, let's just be straight with people. Say that we made mistakes and we need to course correct. I think Canadians are forgiving, but I have no confidence at this point in time that the government uh, will do anything to save us from what's coming. And I haven't heard anything from the government to change my position. And I hope they come up with something impressive today, and I hope they tell us the whole plan.
0: Yeah, what would you like to see?
2: Well, first of all, who's in charge? That's my my first question. So is the Chief Medical Officer of Health in charge? Is Premier Ford in charge? Is Dr. Hire in charge? I mean, Dr. Hire was in charge of testing, which I think is the, the biggest problem we're facing. Now apparently he's in charge of the whole pandemic plan. And that may be great and maybe he's very capable, but we don't have a defined leader who stands at the microphone who is apolitical and tells us what's going on each day. Uh, That's what we need. Uh, There are lots of doctors on Twitter, including myself, screaming into the echo chamber, but none of us have been called except when politicians uh, let us know that we should stop talking. That's the only kind of connection I've had with the government for the past four months when they told me to be quiet. Uh, Really? We we don't know who's making decisions uh, because they're hidden behind a cloak of uh, of, of, uh, no one's actually saying who's at the tables. Nobody's standing up and saying, I'm responsible for this decision, and there's no plan. So. Uh, I don't even know where to start, but I think this is a, a great example of failed leadership on so many levels, and uh, unless things change, we're we're going to be in trouble.
0: Okay. Did the failed leadership start out with, with poor messaging, confusing messaging? Is that where they lost us? Uh,
2: so I think that the messaging can be inconsistent because this is a new situation that nobody's used to. It's a new disease. So I think Canadians and Ontarians, including me, have to give the government slack to make mistakes. and and I will, and I have, but I think you also have to acknowledge when those mistakes have been made. To say that, and for Premier Ford to say that he he wants to get 50,000 tests, that's great, but you can still go to a strip club today and have a lap dance. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to to say that we need to get things under control, but not put in place the things that are necessary to get things under control, especially in the areas of the province where things are already out of control. So the inconsistency is what's driving me bananas, because... uh, it just isn't a coherent message, and I think for non-medical people, just the average person out there listening, I'd be completely confused. If we want to talk about schools, for example, I think each school board or each public health unit has a different set of rules to determine whether a child can go back to school, whether they need a test or not, whether they need to isolate, etc. The lack of a coherent message, I think, is is causing people to be very anxious. And what's going to happen, Kelly? Is people are just going to stop getting tested? They're going to self diagnose their kids. They're going to um, look for ways around uh, the structure that's been set because the structure isn't working for people.
0: You know what I read uh, and it caught my eye? It was just a headline How Can You Tell It's a Cold and Not COVID 19? And I thought, wow, if that is some, that's something that someone's going to click on right there, that's clickbait. I get why you'd want to know if it's cold or not COVID-19, but definitively, the only thing you could do is, is get a test, but that's not really what we want to see a ton of people doing as well, run into those testing centers. So what do you do?
2: Well, we want people with symptoms to get tested. So I was one of those people with symptoms and so was my son. It took 38 hours for me to get my test result back. I was unable to work for three days. There's only four ICU doctors in my hospital. There's only 400 of us in the province. So you can do the math on that, you know, and, uh, So people with symptoms do need to be tested. Make no mistake, that is important. And I can't tell whether a kid with a runny nose has a cold or COVID-19, and people shouldn't be diagnosing their own children. But you know what they will? Because people have to go to work. and they don't have sick days they don't have benefits and they need to pay rent at the end of the month and i think we need to acknowledge that reality and also acknowledge the people who are hit hardest in wave one may be those same essential workers and people in marginalized communities who can't afford to stand in line all day and then sit at home for five days waiting for a test result this is an equity issue as much as it is a health issue and um, the same people are going to get nailed in wave two and those are the patients i take care of and those are the ones i'm trying to advocate for
0: doctor before i let you go can you give us your uh, your feeling, your gut feeling, on how bad you think wave two is going to be?
2: So, uh, you know, I never want to be accused of being a fear monger, but I don't get nervous about many things. But I'm more nervous for this wave two, which I think could be significantly prolonged compared to wave one. Maybe not as intense, uh, but it's going to be a long, dark winter. And uh, that's even if things change today. But nothing has changed today. And if nothing changes, nothing changes. I could see us having a thousand cases. Uh, in several weeks, and the truth is, we don't know how many cases because lots of people aren't getting tested. So, my concern is that the cases in the 20 and 30 year olds are going to end up being cases in older older people who will end up in the hospital several weeks from now, and then we won't have the supply of healthcare workers to provide them with care or with non-COVID related care. And that's really where I get stressed when I can't help people because there's no space in the hospital or no beds or no people to take care of them. So, I hope that doesn't happen. But the Ford government needs to make decisions now that they should have made two weeks ago
0: all right dr michael warner let's hope that uh, we hear some uh, positive news from the ford government they're going to unveil part of uh, another part of their fall pandemic plan today thank you so much for joining us
2: take care thank you
0: cheers that's dr michael warner head of icu at michael Garron hospital Uh, A lot of things to uh, take stock of in that conversation, for sure. This is interesting news. You know, a lot of brands have been uh, changing because we've been having some very important conversations, not only in the United States around race and uh, race relations and uh, marginalized people, uh, stereotypes, but we've been having these conversations globally. And so earlier on this year, we found out that um, one of the big products that would be changing their name would be Aunt Jemima. Because Aunt Jemima Syrup, uh, that criticism was that character's origins were based on the mammy, a black woman content to serve her white masters. Um, And so now we're hearing that Mars, is uh, the company that owns Uncle Ben's, is rebranding Uncle Ben's Rice in their latest racial stereotype retirement. Here to talk about it, Alyssa Freeman, who's a pop culture PR expert and friend of the show. Alyssa, good to have you back. Hi, always good to be
3: back with you, Kelly.
0: So this Uncle Ben's Rice has um, held firm on not only uh, the name for 70 years, but also the, you know, the caricature. Uh, It's kind of evolved a little bit over the years. You know, at some point they put Uncle Ben in a bow tie. But at the end of the day, when I was a kid looking in the... uh, in the cupboard, you know, for for dry goods and pulled out the Uncle Ben's rice. I kind of did get an icky feeling that he was somebody's servant, to say the very least. So Mars is unveiling new packaging. We don't know what it's going to look like. We do know that Uncle Ben, that name is gone. It'll be Ben's original. How important was it to keep the Ben in the Uncle Ben's as far as branding goes?
3: Well, you hit the nail right on the head, Kelly. You have to keep the Ben in there because you have decades and decades and decades of brand equity so when people are looking for an instant rice they think of uncle ben so to get rid of ben would have been absolutely uh, devastating for the brand so you know a lot of these companies like you mentioned aunt jemima as they have all decided they need to re-look at their branding relook at their packaging and make sure that they're being sensitive to the times Really, they should have been sensitive all the way along, but this is not something that ever occurred to people before because nobody said anything about it. Um, We call these things now microaggressions. So before when it never really used to matter, now it does matter. And what I find interesting, uh, you know, about the makers of Uncle Ben's Mars brands is that they're just not changing the packaging. They're going all in. So what they're saying is that they're also going to partner with the National Urban League and they're going to donate $2 million to a scholarship fund for aspiring black chefs. So this isn't just the face that they're changing. What they're doing is they're showing that the rubber is really hitting the road and they're not doing it just because it's convenient to do so.
0: Is that because they're handing a win to their competitor, Minute Rice, if they don't go far enough?
3: Well, you know, that is a really good point. You know, Minute Rice is a very generic name. It doesn't have any sort of cultural affiliation with it. And I buy Minute Rice. I particularly like the basmati. However, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> and it comes in four individual packages. However, it's what it does do is that it maintains their positioning. People will see the packaging. So then you say we haven't seen the packaging yet, and there's probably a really good reason for that, because packaging is everything on the store shelves, especially when... When you are just placed all together with your competitors. So people will need to recognize the typeface, which I don't think is going to change. I've seen a wordmark and it looks like uh, typically the same sort of typeface.
0: But What's there, a wordmark for those of us that, that aren't uh, aware? A word mark? Okay, thank you. It's
3: um, for telling me to explain that. It's a logo. And uh, it's the way that you, the style that you put the letters in. Um, you know, sometimes when you're typing out an email, you might choose Arial, for example, as a font. It's really like the
0: only because it's at the top, and I'm lazy.
3: Yeah, I, I like Calibri myself. That and that's telling you everything I like today. But so that is a word mark. So that packaging is going to be crucial in terms of maintaining customer loyalty.
0: Okay. Do they have any science behind that? The, the fact that we, you know, recognize and uh, you know uh, the type of font actually registers with product. Yeah. Do you know anything do. about that? They do, Well, right? I don't
3: know exactly about the science, but I do know that there is a science to it. And we all know that we need to see and hear things, you know, minimum three times, and most people say 10 times for it to sort of seep into our consciousness. And recognizing a font, a word mark, a photo that's attached to something that we like, it gives us that subconscious pull that we trust that brand or we trust that product. So this is very, very important to maintain that visual trust as it is to maintain that social trust.
0: You know what I think they should do. If you're going to run a campaign about Uncle Ben's rice, and if you are going to attach some sort of imagery, they should get a lot of people's uncles named Ben that like like the rice and use them.
3: That's hysterical, uh, and they'd be from all different walks of life. Yeah, um, very
0: diverse.
3: You know what? Give Mars the Mars folks a call. I bet they're trying to figure this out.
0: They can't afford me. <laughs> they can't afford me.
3: No, um, undoubtedly not.
0: No, jokes aside, though, uh, are we going to see any kind of imagery, do you think, to, to go along with the uh, Ben's original as, as they start to transition and try and get away from that Uncle Ben's uh, debacle? Be
3: more, yeah, I think it'll be more around the product itself, how great the product looks or can look if you buy the product. So we often see this on boxes of things that we buy, whether it's cereal, whether it's rice. Um, whether it's anything. And we take a look at the picture and think, okay, that looks pretty good. We turn it around and go, okay, that doesn't seem hard to make. So that type of imagery is very important to not only communicate the brand, but also the ease of making it.
0: All right. Well, Alyssa, I appreciate your time as always. Always a pleasure to have you on the program. And nice to know that uh, if you want some Uncle Ben's, or Minute Rice rather, it comes in four fantastic flavors, basmati gets a thumbs up. (laughs)
3: yes it does but i'd also give uncle oh sorry ben's original i tried to
0: (laughs) that's right it's going to take a while before we all get used to switching names yeah all right have yourself a fantastic afternoon thanks so much for joining us
3: thanks for having me
0: well that's a wrap on the podcast thanks so much for joining us don't forget we broadcast daily nine to noon on global news radio 640 toronto